Yeah, well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's good to see you guys here again. I was here last week, and uh, good to get to know some of the new people who've joined the Church at Five congregation with the, the new semester starting off in, in Freiburg. And it just occurred to me that today is actually the one-year anniversary of the start of Church at Five. We started on 30th of October, 2016. We can give a round of applause to Church at Five, can't we? Church at Five, well done. Well done, Church at Five. So, um, Jairus mentioned at the start of worship that it's good to be thankful to God. And I think we, re- I certainly speak for myself, I know I speak for Brandon as well, for Yanis, for Bex. We are so thankful for what God has done in this service over the course of one year. So, And if we look at the Reformation now, let's hope, let's pray, let's trust that there will be a, an English-speaking presence here in 500 years' time, if the Lord should tarry that long. Yeah, good thing. Maybe you don't want the Lord to tarry. Not so much applause now. Okay. <laughs> Good. Got, 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 got that cleared up. Okay, yeah, we come now to um, Sola Fide, which is part two in our six-part series. Six Sunday evenings here at Church at Five. We'll be looking at the Reformation. Um, and we said like, we start the series off last week with Sola Scriptura, by the Scripture alone, so on the basis of God's Word alone. And if you didn't hear that message, it's online. You can go and grab a listen. They kind of build on each other. It was basically following the principle of Sola Scripture, appealing to the Scriptures, the Holy Bible alone, that brought Martin Luther to, um, to his understanding of the Gospel. And that's what we'll be speaking about this evening, his understanding of the Gospel, specifically as it relates to the doctrine of justification, because that is what is meant when we speak about Sola Fide, by faith alone, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I just wanted to, I said this this morning as well at the beginning, um, we will be looking back a little bit into church history during this series, um, but the focus is not on church history per se, although I just want to say it's important for us to know our church history. This is our history, the history of our people. If we look back and see the continuity between God's people all the way back through the Old and the New Testaments, then all of this in this book including the Old Testament and all that God has given to his church through the ages of the, the new era after Jesus Christ has come. That's all our history, and it's good to know where we've come from. So we will be looking at a little bit of history, but specifically what we want to do is look at the legacy that came out of the Reformation in terms of the teaching, the rediscovery, not the, um, not the invention, but rather the rediscovery of doctrines, of practices that were held not only by the apostles and the New Testament church, but by the, the, the early church as well, by the, the church fathers. We want to rediscover that legacy so that we understand it. It's so important. That's the, that's the methodology that the apostle Paul follows in all, I'm pretty sure, all of his letters, that he begins with praise and thanksgiving to God. He tells the church how much he's praying for them, and then he lays out the doctrine, the teaching about God or about Jesus Christ, or about the gospel. And in light of the doctrine, he appeals to us that our lives would be changed by what we've understood, by what we know. And that's our desire with this series as well, that we would learn these things, not in the sense of learning for an exam in church history or an exam in, in systematic theology, but learn them so that our lives might be changed. I really do subscribe to that school of thought, which says if you're looking for spiritual growth, if you feel like you're struggling maybe, in terms of affection for the Lord, 
there's a, a good idea is to open up a systematic theology, and I can recommend a few to you at the end, and just start reading about the, the doctrines of the Bible systematically presented page after page to show the glory of God. That's the kind of spirit we want to have in this series. And I want to make one more point before we dive into the topic today. As we'll see today, we're going to be, we're going to be listening or going to be hearing, I should say, about practices in the church 500 years ago which, are, which were not good, which were not good, to put, um, put it mildly. And so it's important that, we, that I say this at the beginning, that 500 years ago there was just one church in the West. There was just one church. Everybody was part of the one church, the Catholic church. That's what the meaning of Catholic is, the universal worldwide church. And so everything that, we, that, we're, that we're talking about here happened in this church, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he, as, as is said, was a loyal son of the church. His desire was to reform the church, not break the church, not destroy the church, not split the church, but to reform the church. We have to remember that. And therefore, we also need to say that the, the late medieval church, the Catholic church of that time, is different to the Roman Catholic Church of today. It's important to note that. I think many Protestants, there are many Protestants who don't really know what they're protesting at all anyway, but there are also a lot of Protestants who tend to say, okay, anything Catholic is automatically bad, and who see all of the abuses and corruption of 500 years ago as basically unchanging, as not having changed through to today. But we want to be fair and honest, even with those we disagree with, and say that isn't so. That isn't so. Now, it's beyond the, the scope of this message. We're focusing on Sola Fide today, not on the current Catholic Church. However, it's important to say there are Catholic churches here in Freiburg, people we know who attend Catholic churches. We want to be fair to them that the Roman Catholic Church of today is different. Nevertheless, there are still major disagreements between our understandings of key Christian doctrines. But if that's a subject that interests you, then you can definitely, maybe you already know some things about it, therefore. But if not, and you'd like to know, then you can come up and speak to me afterwards. Okay, so God, we saw last week, you, in the time of the Reformation, used fallen, fallible, imperfect people to help rediscover many of these truths of the early of the ancient church that had been distorted and marred uh, in the high Middle Ages. And these truths have been distilled down to five major emphases, and that's where we get the titles for, five of, for the five solas, sola scriptura. That is, that we believe that the Bible is our ultimate and highest authority, that we appeal to the scriptures alone as the highest authority above all other authorities and above popes and cardinals. Sola fide, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and not by any works, and we'll look at that tonight. And they go on next week, Sola Gratia, by grace alone, the week after Solo Christo, through Christ alone, and on our fifth week, glory to God, so sorry, sorry, Soli Deo, Gloria to the glory of God alone. And just looking forward, our sixth week, we'll be kind of looking at the future of the Reformation, and looking at what we are hoping for as Christians. So that kind of ties in with what I just said before. In 500 years, if the Lord tarries, well, we'll be looking at how long he may tarry or may not on week six when we look at Christ the King, the future of the Reformation. And we believe here and confess that each of these slogans, I said this last week, it's important to say so that you know that these slogans are faithful to Scripture, faithful to the ancient church, 
uh, not an invention, but a reformation. And it's God's desire that we understand them, not merely in terms of head knowledge, but then they then transform our lives and shape the way we live our lives. I truly believe that. That is what happened. Certainly in the life of Martin Luther, you see a massive change as he understood the truth about God's gospel for the very first time. So the event that got it all started, which is coming up on Tuesday, and on that note, 7.30 p.m. here on Tuesday evening, we'll have our Reformation Day service, worship service, and that will be in English and German. So you're welcome to join us on Tuesday evening here at 7.30 for a special service uh, to mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So, yeah, be welcome. So, But that's the day, 500 years ago, the 31st of October, the day before All Saints, that according to, uh, according to tradition, according to how the, um, how the account has been handed down to us, Martin Luther took the 95 theses that he'd written and he nailed them to the church door of the castle church in Wittenberg. It was the spark that lit the Reformation. From there, there was no looking back. At that time, Martin Luther was looking for a debate. His theses were, were written in Latin, and he wanted to debate what he'd written down with the other theologians, with the philosophies at the university in Wittenberg. No debate immediately was forthcoming. Later, of course, Luther was involved in debates. But before, before as, there were, as, as it were, there was any academic response to what Martin Luther had written, these theses were taken, translated into German, and printed and spread around the German-speaking lands. And I was just going over something this week, and one of the earliest places they were printed was just down the river here, or up the river, I should say, in Basel. So very quickly they'd spread, spread all the way from Saxony down here to... Well, it wasn't Baden then, was it? But anyway, down here to Freiburg and Basel. And, and then there, wasn't any, there was nothing stopping the movement once this... Once the, um, once the thesis had been translated into the common language and people were beginning to read what Martin Luther had written. And you might think, certainly I thought, the very first time I heard of the 95 theses that Martin Luther had written them, I thought, okay, his theses, they must have to do with kind of the Protestant understanding, the evangelical understanding of the gospel. He's going to be talking there about maybe good works versus faith, that kind of thing. But that's not at all what the 95 theses are about. In the main, basically... Yeah, almost all of them, except for a very few, but even those are sort of um, connected as well, they concern the selling of indulgences. And that's where we're going to start tonight, because this has everything to do with sola fide, with faith alone. They concern the selling of, of indulgences. And just let me ask, I've asked in every service, who's heard of the selling of indulgences or what indulgences are in German? Just for you guys, in case, it's Ablasshandel in German. That's what Martin Luther was writing about. And I just want to briefly explain this to you. So um, basically we could start the story off with Pope Julius II, known as the warrior pope. He was known to lead out armies. He had children. There you go. He was that kind of pope. Anyway, yeah. He wanted to build a new St. Peter's. If you go to Rome now, the St. Peter's that you see there today was the church that was begun by Pope Julius, the apostolic palace there at the Vatican City. Because when uh, Julius was Pope, there was the older St. Peter's Basilica on that site, which dated back to the time of Constantine, so the AD, early AD 300s. So it was pretty old. It was 1,200 years old. It was falling to pieces basically because it hadn't been maintained properly. The popes, the papacy, had been 
in exile, as it were, in the 14th century in Avignon in southern France. They'd now come back, and, and this church was falling apart. And, and Julius, he had, he, was a very, he had a great opinion of himself, was convinced of his own grandeur, and was planning his own grave to be this massive mausoleum inside this church. Ridiculous, really, let's face it. But he wanted to build a new church. And he needed to raise money to do that. And that was kind of the start. It's, it's interesting. This is, this, the fact that Julius wanted to build a new church is in, in one way that set the ball rolling to allow the Reformation to occur. Because to raise money, he authorized the sale, and, and subsequent popes, I mean, Julius didn't last forever. Very few popes do. Subsequent popes continued this. He authorized the sale of indulgences. So the sale obviously means money. For money, you could buy an indulgence. An indulgence was a papal indulgence. And many of you would have seen pictures of these or seen them in films. It was a piece of paper with a seal on it, with a, with a text on it from the Pope or in the name of the Pope saying that if you had purchased this, then you had reduced the time that you had to spend in purgatory or reduced the time that a relative of yours, often parents or grandparents, had to spend in purgatory. And these were particularly popular in, in, in several parts um, of the, the Holy Roman Empire at the time. I've heard one commenter saying the empire was neither holy nor Roman, not really an empire either. But in any case, what we'd now call Germany. And due to church politics, a bloke called Albert of Brandenburg, he had to pay for church offices. So you could kind of buy yourself a bishopric in that kind of... That was, that was the, kind of, the kind of time that it was. And again, you can ask me questions about all of these, these things later. We don't have time to go into them, but it's an interesting time. You could buy a bishopric. And Albert had done this, and he needed to pay, pay, the, he needed to pay the money back. He'd, he'd received a loan, and so he was authorized to allow the sale of indulgences on his territory. And he was, uh, he was the bishop of Magdeburg, which is just near Saxony. It's interesting that Frederick the Wise, who was Luther's patron, who protected him later after the Diet of Worms, that he refused to allow the, the selling of indulgences in the territory of Saxony. So Luther didn't experience it firsthand, but people from his area would cross the border into the territory of Magdeburg and there buy indulgences. And they were sold there, particularly by one, or what's come down to us in history, one Dominican um, monk named John, in the English, John Tetzel, was selling them, and he was selling them aggressively. Now, he wasn't selling them in the sense that he was trying to fleece the people, trying to steal their money. It really seems with Tetzel, as he wrote his own bunch of theses back to Luther after this, it seems that Tetzel really believed in what he was doing, really believed in what he was doing. So he was a very aggressive seller of indulgences, and this is what got back to Luther, and Luther was appalled at the abuse of the poor, that their money was being taken from them and they were being given, in his eyes, useless pieces of paper. That was one of his theses. I think it was theses number 45, that the person who buys an indulgence does not incur God's forgiveness, but in, sorry, does not incur the Pope's forgiveness, but incurs God's wrath. Another of his theses was that it is far better to help the poor than to buy an indulgence. So that was where Luther was coming from. And we know um, that there's a little slogan that Tetzel, that's come down to us through the ages that Tetzel used. He said, when the coin in the coffer, so the, the bag that he was carrying around to, when these things were being sold, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. 
And so Luther was motivated against the abuse of this system, but originally not against the system at all. He was appalled. He wanted to write to Albert, to the bishop. Luther was perhaps a bit naive at this time and say, do you know what's going on in your name here? Do you know what's being done and what's being said? And Luther didn't realize that, in fact, Albert and, as it turns out, Pope Leo, who was Pope at this time, were in on the whole thing. So just to show you the relationship, though, the issue of sola fide, faith alone, is ultimately the question, is ultimately about the question of justification. And this is connected to indulgences. Justification is a big word. And so the question becomes, how are we justified? How do we stand? And we need to, sorry, stop for a moment and say, and give a little explainer in English. This works better in German. In German, you have all of these words are from the single word family. And so I'm just going to indulge a little in saying you have, for example, the word gerecht, you have gerechtigkeit, and you have rechtfertigen, all from the one language family or from the same root. It's the same in Greek in the original New Testament language. But in, in English, we have kind of have a help here because we have on the one hand justification and just, and on the other hand, we have righteousness and righteous. But I want you to know that in the Greek, they're all the same. They're all related to each other. So when we speak about justification, we're actually speaking about making righteous. It's the same word in Greek. So the question becomes, how are we justified? How, do we, how are we made righteous before God? And of course, we, we should know Luther's answer. It's kind of written on the, on the poster downstairs, sola fide, by faith alone, by our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we're going to see what this has to do with indulgences because they, they really hang here together. But firstly, let's ask the question, what is justification? What is, what is this? I, and I, I say we usually associate it with uh, a reason. You know, when we need justification, we need a reason why it's okay or not okay to do or not do something. That's what we mean by justification. But as I, as I indicated before, justification here in terms of uh, the, in terms of theology, in terms of the Bible, is about how we are made righteous, how we are made just or not before God. And to start, I want to read you this passage from Romans 3, from the second part of verse 9, because we need to see our existential need for justification. We need to see that very clearly. And Paul makes it crystal clear here. He uses quotes from the Old Testament. This is what he writes. He says, For we have already, we, he's speaking in the authorial we, so in, the, in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Romans, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, all non-Jews and Jews, so every person, all alike, are under the power of sin. And now he brings his quotes from God's word to back up his point. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. He's now using the emotive language of the prophets. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul is not saying here that every single person is as totally evil as they could possibly be. But he's saying every single person, Jew or non-Jew, so Gentile or Greek, has sinned. As we read a few verses later, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this brings us back to Martin Luther, because Martin Luther, as I said last week, he had an intense awareness all his life that this is true. And I really hope that you understand, I know this text is very negative. It's not a particularly optimistic view of the human race. But I hope you understand that this is the verdict on the human race as marred by sin, as under the power of sin. And Martin Luther was aware of this. He was also aware, as I said last week, he had a particular gift, you almost might say, of being always aware of the holiness, the, the eternality, the power of Almighty God. And seeing himself under this verdict, standing before Almighty God at the end of his life, what would he say? What would he say? That's what drove him. This question, how? How do I find, or how do I get, as he even put it, a merciful God, a God who loves me? We could, we could ask a related question, how can I or how can we stand before a holy God when we have this sin, when we have this verdict standing over us? And so we need to see from this text our pressing need this is an existential need. This is crucial that we need to be justified. We need to be made righteous. We need to be made righteous so that when we stand before God, our sin and our guilt has been dealt with. And that's just a, a warning that we, all, that we all need to take. We should be, we, it should be clear to every one of us here, we will all one day stand before Almighty God. And therefore we have this existential need to be made righteous and that drove luther on through many dark years to find an answer to this question to deal with his sin and with his guilt and so how do i mean we can't justify ourselves so how does it work now according to the roman catholic church and here we come to the sale of indulgences the um the system works like this and this is what luther grew up with this is what he grew up learning teaching and practicing. Roman Catholic theology understands justification as to make just. That's where we actually get the English word justification from, or justify from the Latin justificare, which comes from two Latin words, justus, meaning just, and facere, meaning to make. To make just, Janus. That's what it means, buddy. To make just. And therefore, the Roman understanding, you will see, involved actually making a person really just. And how did they get there? Well, let's see. The grace of justification is poured into a person's soul when they start out on the Christian life. And this is done, according to the Roman Catholic position, through the, the sacrament of baptism. You see, for the Roman Catholics, the sacraments are not mere empty signs. It's not just, it's not just water as, as per se, or just bread and just wine. The sacraments truly transmit grace into the life of a person. 
They truly transmit grace into the life of a person. Therefore, the system that was in place this time can be called a sacramental system. So you receive actual real grace in your soul through the, through the sacrament of baptism. And that's the, that's the initial grace that brings you into a state of grace and, and begins the process of justification. And you continue in that week by week or even more often by taking part in the sacrament of the Mass, that is the Eucharist, partaking of the body and blood, if you're offered it, of the Lord. And this is the way the system works, through receiving grace, kind of updates. I don't want to be too, you know what I mean. By receiving updates of grace, by cooperating, by exercising faith, and therefore producing good works, you grow in holiness. You actually become more righteous, or you become really righteous. So let me just say at that point, it's important to know, the Roman Catholic Church has never taught that a person may be saved without faith in Christ or without the grace of God. Never. The question for Luther and for us is always, is it through grace alone? Or is it grace plus, faith plus? So you actually grow to become more and more holy. Now, the fact of the matter is, very few people make it along this way. In fact, I mean, the apostles did, the saints of the church did. They, they, they made it so that they were actually holy, actually righteous when they died and were received directly into the presence of God in heaven. But for most other people, they never make it. And when they die, there's still sin remaining in them. That sin has to be purged, cleansed. And it's cleansed and purged by fire. And that's why we get purgatory from to purge, to cleanse. The fire where we go to have that remaining sin in us removed so that we are actually made righteous. Justificare, to be made righteous. That's how this system worked. That's how this system worked. And we need to say a few more things. In the case of a mortal sin, you remember that the Catholic system um, differentiates between venial sin and mortal sin. Mortal sin is called, is so called because mortal sin is so grave that it destroys the grace of justification in a person's soul. And so I just want, I need to mention this. You could have the position, the, the, the situation where a person has committed a mortal sin, has destroyed the grace of justification in their soul. They may have faith in Jesus Christ and have faith, but no justification. Which brings us to the sacrament again, something which transmits real grace of penance, the sacrament of penance, which is really what this whole question of sola fide is all about, penance. If you have made shipwreck of your faith by committing a mortal sin, then there is a, the, a, the second plank, as it's called, of justification, which is the sacrament of penance. You need to go to a priest and confess your sins, and you need to show true contrition, you actually need to really be sorry and understand that you have offended holy God. And he then speaks the absolution of sins, the forgiveness by saying, te absolvo, I forgive you. After that, you are called to do works of satisfaction, works to make good what you have done that has been evil. And there is where the question of indulgences come in. Let me read you 
something here through um, to, to help you understand this system because this is the system that was in place at Luther's time and this is what provoked ultimately the understanding of justification by faith alone. Through a valid confession of sin, the person receives forgiveness for the sins confessed. But if on account of a mortal sin, the person no longer found themselves in a state of grace, what's called a state of grace, so that grace of justification had been destroyed, then the confession of sin and the absolution restores the person into fellowship with God and with the church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. However, confession does not remove the temporary punishment for sin which is caused by committing that sin. Which temporary punishment must be served in purgatory. Therefore, persons or people who, in addition to the forgiveness of sins, also desire to reduce the temporary punishment for their sins in purgatory, can, um, can obtain, in addition to confessing their sins to a priest, can obtain an indulgence. That's where the idea comes from. It has everything to do with making a person just, with justification, with getting to the point that they actually are just or actually are righteous and therefore allowed out of purgatory and into the presence of God in heaven. And this is the issue that we're concerned about here when we talk about justification by faith alone. So it wasn't until two years after he nailed his theses to the castle church door according to Luther's own reckoning that he finally came to understand that. It's been come, come down to us in history. It's called the Tower Experience. It happened in the Tower at the University at Wittenberg in 1519, where Luther finally understood justification by faith from the book of Romans. I'm going to hear from Luther in a minute. Let me read to you firstly Romans 1, 16 and 17. Famous verses which will have a completely different effect on you as they had on Luther for so many years. We read them and we think this is the, this is the heart of Paul's letter. He's giving us the, the subject of what he's going to be talking about through that, through that greatest letter ever written, the letter to the church at Rome. Ironic, isn't it, that it was sent to Rome? Well, here is Romans 1, 16 through 17. Paul writes... For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Listen carefully to verse 17. But this is the verse where Luther got stuck. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now let's listen to how, what Luther wrote. Uh, he wrote these words in 1545, a year before he died. He wrote them as part of the preface to the publication of his collected works in Latin. He writes these words, Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, I had begun interpreting the Psalms once again. I felt confident that I was now more experienced as an interpreter, since I had dealt in university courses with St. Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and with a letter to the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far, there had stood in my way, not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word, which is in chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed in it, revealed in the gospel. I hated that word, righteousness of God. 
which by the use and custom of all my teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically, going back to Aristotle, as referring to formal or active justice, as they call it. That is, the justice or righteousness by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. We talk, for example, in this sense of righteousness, this sense of justice, in terms of the state, in terms of the police force or the court system, being righteous is to punish the criminals who commit crimes against the state or against the law. We would say that the system was unjust if it let criminals go free. It's, it's, it, it is righteous when it pursues cases against those who are criminals. And that's how Luther understood it, this active, that God is a holy God, He's a righteous God. He sees us before him and that we're all sinners, that we've all committed sins, that we're all deserving of, of punishment, and he actively punishes. And the crazy thing is that Luther saw this as being revealed in the gospel, that this righteousness, this active righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel. That is not good news. And he says here quite openly, Luther is very open, he says, I hated this word. I hated this word. Listen to how he how he puts it because he he makes no bones about it he says you can see how you can see how he struggled he says at the same he says at the, at the same time that he hated god he look how look how he puts it here he said isn't it enough talking about again romans 117 isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments. He's saying when God gave us the Ten Commandments, he gave us ten more rules that we had to keep, and that if we break them, we're in more trouble. Why does God now heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel, and through the gospel threaten us with his righteousness and his wrath? This was how I was raging with a wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly begged Paul, St. Paul, about that spot in Romans 1, and I anxiously wanted to know what he meant. That's the way Luther approached Bible study. He really wanted to know what, that, what the text meant. Luther is a model for us in terms of Bible study. He, his Bible study was grounded on prayer and on not giving up until he had un- uncovered the meaning of the text. He shows us that as he continues. I meditated night and day, not day and night. It's not like he was meditating during the day and kept going into the evening. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. Righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the, the, the just or righteous person lives, by a gift of God, that is, by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive righteousness. So not the active punishing righteousness, but rather a passive righteousness which is given to us. I.e., well, that is, that by which the merciful God makes us righteous, justifies us by faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this changed Luther's life. This is what I meant. This understanding changed his life. He's, he's given us the, his, his testimony now many years later. He says, All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. 
Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. It's an amazing story. He thought that he'd gone into paradise because it completely turned the system on its head. There was no need now for purgatory. There was no need for him through, through this constant uh, uh, mill or, or um, this constant action of receiving grace through sacraments and co-opting to do good works, and then at the end having to be purged of all remaining sin in purgatory, it was all gone. It was all gone. Now he realized that it was the free gift of God through faith. Let me read to you the verses just a bit further on in the letter to the Romans, verses that follow the ones we read before, the verdict on the whole human race. Next to these words in the margin of the Luther Bible, Luther said that this is the heart of, and soul of the whole Bible, of the whole gospel. Romans 3, 21. He writes, Paul writes, but now, so we had, we, had that, we had that verdict. There was no fear of God before their eyes. The whole human race under the power of sin. And these two precious little words, but now, something has changed. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, same words as in Romans 1, 17, has been made known, not through the law, not through the system of performing good works. Apart from that, the righteousness of God has been known, but to which the law and the prophets testify. If we read the law carefully, we should have known that this was going to be this way. That's what Jesus said to his disciples also. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are therefore justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement for sin through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, He did this to to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just or so as to be righteous, all the same word in Greek, and the one who justifies or makes righteous those who have faith in Jesus. Romans uh, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Luther understood that the word justify or make righteous in the Greek text of the New Testament, different to the Latin justificare, doesn't mean to make righteous in the sense to analytically make it a reality that someone is righteous and then they go into heaven, therefore the need for purgatory. But Luther understood that this word means to declare righteous. We talk about forensic or um, forensic justification, that is that God makes a statement. God makes a declaration, a pronouncement that we are just. And he does this by his grace freely, through the redemption found in Christ Jesus. So, this is how it works, that God makes, God makes a declaration about us, about each one of us, when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Immediately, this declaration is made over you, over your life. You are just. You are righteous in God's sight. The verdict that you will one day hear, as you stand before the throne of God at the end of history or at the end of your life, 
You now hear that verdict already. It's brought forward. You can know with all assurance what you will hear from God at the end. That assurance is given to you now. God makes that judgment now. He makes a declaration now. You are just based on what Jesus Christ has done. And this, this, this leads us to Luther's famous statement. We're going to explore this very briefly because we saw that the Roman Catholic understanding involves somebody actually being made righteous, that they actually righteousness or, or, just, or justice inheres in them and how people can't live up to that. They end up in purgatory. So this led Luther to, to make the famous statement that we are simul justus, Et peccator, that is Latin for simul at the same time, justus, just, et and peccator, sinner. We're at the same time just and a sinner. Just a few verses later in Romans 4 verse 5, Paul makes the claim that, that the God who we believe in is the God who justifies the ungodly. In one sense, a ridiculous claim in the ancient world as now. A God who justifies the ungodly, who declares ungodly people to be righteous, to be just. That's the kind of God we believe. And we need to understand how God can do this. How God can do this. Because we, we need, as it, we need, as it, as it says in, in verse 3 and 26, and we'll have a look at that in a moment, we need God to be both just or righteous and also the one who justifies us, we can't justify ourselves, the one who makes us righteous. And this leads Luther to understand, as we read before, um, that righteousness is given to us. So we have to understand what is often called the great exchange, the great exchange at this point. We are not righteous. I think all of us know that. We've all sinned today, we'll all sin tomorrow. It's just the way it is. We're sinners. So we're not righteous. So how can God say that we are righteous? Well, Luther puts it this way. That all of our sin has been taken by God and placed onto Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the first part of the great exchange. All of our sin has been taken and placed onto Jesus Christ on the cross. That he, as it says in the Bible, he bore our sins in his body. Or, as Paul says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, was made to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ bore in himself on the cross all of our sins. And I think it's worth saying that. So when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, it wasn't merely the excruciating pain of crucifixion that he was undergoing. It wasn't that he saved us, as it were, by undergoing the most painful thing that there could possibly be. But rather, in that moment, Jesus Christ was truly loaded up with all our sin, all of the filth of our sin. And we're not just talking here little sins, as it were, sins of gossip, sins of backbiting, that kind of thing. We're talking about human trafficking, slavery, prostitution. All of this was loaded onto Jesus Christ. He, he bore them. He was truly forsaken by God the Father. God cannot look upon that kind of sin. God is holy. It cannot stand in his presence. And God poured out his righteous, his just wrath and anger 
for this sin on Jesus Christ. Because that's what it means for God to be just. You cannot be just and good and ignore sin, sweep it under the carpet, say it'll all be okay. It's all right, guys. I'll just issue a general declaration. You guys are all forget. That's not how it works. God wouldn't be just. God wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be trustworthy if he didn't take evil and good seriously and recognize that evil needs to be dealt with. That he dealt with it by loading it all upon his son, Jesus Christ, or Jesus, I should say, freely bearing our sin upon him. So that's the first part of the great exchange. That's what happens to our sin and guilt. It's taken from us and borne by Christ on the cross. But the second part is that we receive, as it says here in verse 24, this righteousness which is apart from the law. It's not, it doesn't come through the law. It is actually the righteousness of Christ. Christ lived a holy, sinless life. And it's his righteousness that is given to all who believe, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And it's given through faith. So we receive the righteousness of Christ. And in the New Testament, it talks about that. It uses the picture in many places in in Revelation. And Jesus uses it in his parables as well, of it being a white robe. White symbolizing holiness, purity, unblemishedness. That when God looks upon us, he sees us dressed in these white robes of Christ's righteousness. And that is why God can say that we are just because we have put on the righteousness of Christ. And that is why God is both just and justify. He's just because he truly deals with sin and evil. He doesn't ignore them. But he's also the one who who justifies us while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Christ, this is, this is the love of God, that he came after us while we were his enemies, while we were cut off from him. And he decided to make us righteous, to give us freely, as it says here, out of his grace, freely out of his grace, Christ's righteousness, that we might stand before him in his presence. So this leads us, we need to ask the question now, we need to make it very clear, what are the grounds of our justification What are the grounds? On what basis do we stand before God at the end of our lives or at any time, really? On what basis can we stand before God and remain standing and not be condemned for our sin? What is the basis for us being made righteous before him or declared righteous before him? And this comes down to the heart of sola fide. Luther understood what Paul says here, This righteousness is given, what? Verse 22, Romans 3. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's faith, not works. That means we have faith in and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That all our sin was borne by him and his righteousness alone is perfect for us and given to us. It's not that his righteousness needs a little bit extra so we have to kind of really work at it and kind of bring along our collection of good works. It's that his righteousness alone suffices. So this is, this is such an important word to understand. We stand before God, are declared righteous, not on the basis of anything 
we do. Not on the basis of anything you do. Only on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already done. As he said on the cross, it is finished. It is accomplished. And we retain, we appropriate what Jesus did on the cross, taking away our sin and giving his righteousness. We appropriate that. We beget it for ourselves or we receive it for ourselves through faith, through faith alone and not through anything we do. It cannot be earned. This is such a crucial message. It's it's often been said this is so easy to understand. It is quite an, an easy concept to understand. It's so difficult for that understanding to come down into our hearts and actually affect the way we live. I remember many years ago, sitting just over here in this hall, I think it was 2005, and I kind of heard this for probably the first time in my life, this doctrine, and I remember a weight fell from my shoulders. It really did. As in, not, not, not that I was actually wearing a backpack, but it, it was a spiritual weight that fell. And I used this morning the example of Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, who when he starts out on his journey to the heavenly city, he's carrying this burden. He calls it his burden. He's unable to take it off. And finally, as he comes up a hill and sees a cross, and sees the cross, this burden all of itself falls off and had been weighing him down like this. And he's finally able to stand up free. Stand up free. And this is the experience that I had here when I understood it is not about what I do. It's all about what Christ has done. And I want each of you guys to understand that. This, this, is, a, this is the doctrine of Christian freedom. It is not about what you do. It is about what Christ has already done. You simply need to appropriate that by having faith in what he has done. Luther called this, Luther was, he called this the article upon which the church either stands or falls saying, the church has power, it stands strong when it preaches, whether it's through a message here or really through everything that you guys say in all your conversations to people during the week. The church is strong when it preaches this message of hope and grace for sinners, that Jesus Christ has finished the work. That's when the church is strong. But the church falls when we forget that and we start trying to earn our way into God's favor, earn our way into merit try and prove ourselves to God or, or atone for our sins or make up for what we've done wrong, then the church falls. And this is, so the implication is we can rest. We can actually rest from all strivings to earn God's favor, to prove that we really love him or to, or to, to make up for that thing we did that was bad or whatever. We can rest from that. It's never come down to that. We can understand that our right standing before God is a gift, a gift of Christ's righteousness. And as we, we close tonight, I just want to briefly look at faith because we say that this it's by faith alone and I want to look at what that faith is with you. Um, it's faith in the gospel. It's not faith in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's good if you guys know this. But this is not what saves you, believing in this doctrine, although this doctrine is true and it is in the Bible. It is here in Romans. The faith that we're talking about is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, Romans 1 verse 2, The gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, 
who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and, through who, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel. It's the message, the message about a person, Jesus Christ, about who this person is, that he has been recognized to be the son of God by virtue of the fact that God has raised him from the dead. Jesus being raised from the dead was his ultimate vindication that, yes, he truly is who he said he was. He truly is the Son of God. He truly is the Messiah. He truly is the Savior of the world. In, being, in God raising him from the dead, he has shown that death and sin are destroyed, have been defeated. That when we put our, put our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. This is the gospel that we believe Jesus really was who he said he was, that we believe that he really is raised from the dead. And faith is a response to that gospel. Faith is a response to that gospel. And I, I want to give you this example. It's, it's so crucial to understand this. Paul writes in First Thessalonians 2, we also thank God continually because when you Thessalonians receive the word of God, which you heard from us. So you received that word about Jesus. You heard about Jesus as the risen Son of God, risen from the dead. You received it, not as a human word, not just as any old message, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. That's what we're talking about here with faith, to receive the message about Jesus as it truly is the word of God the word of God. That's what faith is. It's the response to that gospel message about Jesus Christ. And I find this, this is so crucial. And I, I, therefore, I want to go through it very briefly with it, with you, very briefly with you. When we say that we're justified, that is, we have righteous standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We need to understand what Luther, what the other reformers meant by faith. They identified three aspects of faith. And it's really important that we have all three. And this is not a work that we produce, but it's just something for you to think about. The first thing we note about Christian saving Christian faith is that it contains content. We're not just sincere about believing anything. We're clear on believing something. And that something is the gospel message about Jesus Christ who he is, what he did, that he's raised from the dead. And so if you ask me, where can I find this content, Sam? Well, I'd say, well, you know, look in the Bible. But in short form, if you will, you can look at the ancient creeds of the Christian church. We sing some of them sometimes here in a song or, or recite them, where we talk about who God the Father is, who the Holy Spirit is, who Jesus Christ is, what our salvation is, and what our hope is. We believe content. The second part of, living, of, of true saving faith is assent, is agreeing to these things as being true, not mere facts about Christianity that we know that Christians believe, but actually agreeing that, yes, this is true. I believe that Jesus really is risen from the dead. I believe that he really is the Son of God. But even with these two, um, we still have only brought it to the place where, we can, where our faith can be compared to that of the demons in James 2. 
James writes there, and he calls this faith a dead faith. He says that even the demons believe in Jesus Christ and tremble. That is, the demons know about Jesus. They know about his death and resurrection. They agree that it's true. They're, not, they're no fools. But do the demons have saving faith? No, according to James, they have dead faith. Therefore, the third and crucial part of, of faith is a personal trust and reliance in the object of our faith, namely in the person of the gospel, the person Jesus Christ. We need to know about him, agree that these things are true, and then personally trust him, set our reliance upon him, rely on his promises, on his word. Personal trust for Jesus Christ. And these three together, Luther called a saving, sorry, a living faith. A living faith. This is what living faith is. And Luther said, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We've got to mark that very carefully. The grounds on which we stand before God are purely on the basis of what Christ has done, his finished work, not by any works we might do. And we appropriate that by believing, by trusting in God, trusting in Jesus Christ that these things are true by trusting ourselves to Jesus Christ and relying on him, by that alone. But, as Luther said, that faith, when that kind of faith is there, it never stays alone. It's a living faith. It's a faith that brings fruit. It's a, fra- it's a, it's a faith that brings a life that wants to honor Christ. And since God's righteousness, and as we finish up now, since God's righteousness is a gift, this is, this is so important, We're now free to serve God and our neighbor as sons and daughters and not slaves, not as slaves. We don't need to go through all of the motions in order to earn God's favor by thinking, okay, I've got to serve these people, I've got to be nice to these people so then God will think that I'm good and God will like and I'll be accepted. We can actually stretch out like this with this burden taken away. We can look God we can actually look God face to face because of what Jesus has done for us, because we've now been adopted into his family. We're no longer slaves outside the family. We're now sons and daughters in the family, co-heirs with Christ of all the promises that have been given to us in the New Testament. We're now, through being in Christ, invited into the very presence of God, into the inter-Trinitarian relationship of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why we can actually go into the very presence of of God, and therefore we can serve God and serve our neighbor as sons and daughters and not as slaves. So we need, on the one hand, to rest, to come to a rest from all strivings that we try and earn God's favor. But we don't need to rest from activity because there's a kind of activity that comes from a rooted confidence, this kind of rooted confidence in God and what he has done that says, because God has graciously accepted me on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone, therefore I want to fight for personal holiness so that my life can honor him. Therefore, because God has graciously accepted me on the basis of my faith in Jesus Christ alone, I want to serve the weak because he has served me at my weakest. I want to bear other people's burdens because it's Christ Jesus who is the great burden bearer who has borne my burden. I want to do good to all because of all the good that Jesus Christ has done for me. 
We're free to be able to, to love and serve our neighbor and God for their own sake and not as a selfish way of promoting ourselves in God's eye, saying, hey, notice me, God, or earning favor with God. We're free. So I want to finish by asking briefly two questions and then we'll read a verse in Matthew and then we'll be taking communion together. Let me ask you, what righteousness are you relying on this evening? That day will come when you stand before Almighty God. What righteousness are you relying on? Are you relying on your own righteousness or are you relying on the righteousness of Christ that is freely available, that God gives you freely through faith in Jesus? I tell you, your own righteousness will not suffice. It will not suffice. You need the perfect righteousness of Christ. But the great thing is, as I mentioned just a moment ago, this righteousness is freely given to you. God freely gives it to you out of his grace and love. And what is your motivation for your Christian life and ministry at the moment? It's a question we all need to ask ourselves. What is your motivation for Christian life and ministry? Is it that you feel, I need to do these things to prove to God that I really love him? To earn my way? To, I mean, we might not say it that, that bluntly, but is that how we actually live? That we think, I need, to, I need to do these things. I need to pray every morning so God will think that I'm a good Christian. Or do we instead see ourselves as free to serve God based on what he's already done? Nothing can, not, there's nothing I can do that can, that can add to what Christ has already done on the cross. And I can accept that free gift as God's love. I can accept the free gift that I've been adopted into his family that I might approach him now and therefore, full of joy, go forth to serve him as a son or as a daughter, knowing that it's all possible from his gracious love. Well, let me finish by reading you Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. And I want to, in a moment, Brandon will come up and lead us into communion. And I want this to be a kind of invitation Invitation on the one hand to come to the table of the Lord in a moment for communion, but also an invitation um, to come and receive this free gift, this rest that comes from Jesus Christ. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.